The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Last week we had a chance to begin our look at Exodus 12, a magnificent chapter of Scripture. And we see one of the best types or acted out prophecies of Christ that you'll find anywhere in the Old Covenant, the Lamb of God. For it was on Mount Moriah that Father Abraham took his son Isaac up the mountain, and Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, here's the fire and here's the wood, but where is the sacrifice for the burnt offering? And Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb. And so he waited for the lamb that God would provide. Of course, God provided a ram that day, and so Abraham still waiting for the lamb of God. Still waiting. And so also the greatest of the Old Testament prophets spoke of a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering who would come, the suffering servant. And he said of him, he was oppressed and afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before his shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. And so he also had a vision. And he waited for the lamb who would come later. And then the final Old Testament prophet, whose life is recorded for us in the New Testament, John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus, he pointed at him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so Jesus came, and after three years of ministry, some odd, he was lifted up on a cross, and his blood was shed at exactly the time that the Passover lamb was being sacrificed. And at that moment, when Jesus said, it is finished, he was the perfect Passover lamb. And Philip knew it when he chased that chariot and saw the Ethiopian eunuch, and the eunuch happened to be reading Isaiah 53. Will wonders never cease in the providence of God? And there he read, he was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before the shear is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Tell me, sir, said the Ethiopian eunuch, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? And beginning from that passage of scripture, Philip told him about Jesus, the Lamb of God. So also the apostle Peter, writing in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 and following, said, you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. The apostle Peter called Jesus a lamb without defect, thinking again of that Passover lamb whose sacrifice prefigured Christ. And then Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7, said, get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the feast. And so for the apostle Paul also, the type was perfectly fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And then finally, 
John, in writing the Apocalypse, had a vision of Jesus. In Revelation chapter 5, it said, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. The Lamb of God, in perfect glory, still showing the wounds of his sacrifice, taking what I believe is the title deed of all the earth. And so all of these, these great men of God, Abraham, the father of the Jews, and Isaiah, the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, and John the Baptist, the last of the Old Testament prophets, and the Apostle Peter, the Apostle to the Jews, and the Apostle Paul, the Apostle to the Gentiles, and John, the beloved disciple who wrote the Apocalypse, and also Philip, one of the greatest of the deacons, all of them seeing in Christ the perfect Lamb of God, whose sacrifice takes away the sin of the world. Now, last time, we got up through verse 20, in which God had commanded the Passover regulations. And in those Passover regulations, there are details which point to Christ in a marvelous way. Remarkable details, which could only have been fulfilled in Christ. For example, if you think about it, we have seen many things preparing for the exodus the leading out of the Jews from slavery in Egypt. If you look at verse 40 and 41, it says, Now the length of the time the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of the 430 years to the very day, all of the Lord's divisions left Egypt. Now I think it's very striking to notice the moment of the Exodus. In Exodus chapter 2, we've marveled at the tender compassion of God in which he sees and is concerned about the plight of his people in Egypt and all of their suffering and their cruel bondage. And we've seen God's compassion, but still they continued in slavery. We've seen in Exodus 3 the call of the deliverer, humanly speaking, Moses at the burning bush, and how in Exodus 3.10 he was given his commission to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go and be the human instrument of God in delivering the people. But still the people were in their bondage still in slavery. We've also listened in Exodus 6, verse 6 through 8, the divine promises of God that he would soon be rescuing the people, that God would deliver them from bondage. But still, even despite the clear giving of the promises, the people were in bondage, still in slavery in Egypt. And we have seen the remarkable providences of God, the divine power, the plagues, the judgments, that he's poured out one after the other, nine plagues up to this point, one after the other, and still the people are in bondage. But the moment that Passover lamb is sacrificed, that night, that very night, they're released from slavery. Is it an accident? Not at all. 
For God is circling and highlighting it is by the blood of this lamb that true deliverance is coming. All of it is in tight form. The true deliverance would come much later because the blood of, of sheep and bulls and goats and lambs could not truly atone for our sin. It had to be John the Baptist, Lamb of God, the one he pointed to, Jesus Christ, when his death came. But still the type had to be perfect and the timing had to be perfect. And so it was that very night, the night of the Passover, the night that the lamb had been sacrificed, that deliverance came. None of the other things actually worked deliverance, all of them just preparations for it. But when the blood of the lamb was shed, then at last came the deliverance. We've also noticed, look in verse 6, the personalization of this lamb. Look at verse 6. It says... Now, this is, I, I tell you what, I am grieved over the NIV on this one. For those of you that, uh, you can just take a pew Bible if you want. L look at the King James Version, or just listen. But uh, the NIV just can't grasp the fact that the, the Hebrew grammar says that they are to slaughter it, the Passover lamb, because up to this point, every family's had their own lamb. Every single one. In the King James Version, Exodus 12:6, it says, Ye shall keep it up, namely the Lamb, until the fourteenth day of the same month, and the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. Now, of course, the NIV says them because it makes more sense, but not to God. Let's not correct the grammar. Let's just run with the grammar. Why does it say that they shall kill it? Because God only ever had one Lamb in mind. And that is Jesus Christ. And so every family had a lamb, and every family, all of them, were to kill it at a certain time. And that is Jesus Christ. We've also seen it in a kind of progression in verses 3 through 5. It says in verse 3, this is from the NAS, it says, Speaking, Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, they are each one to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. Now, in verse 4, it says, Now, if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them, according to what each man should eat, and you are to divide the lamb. Then in verse 5, it says, Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. And so we've seen a progression in verse 3 from a lamb, verse 4, the lamb, and verse 5, what? Your lamb. Now, A.W. Pink has an interesting comment on this. Listen. While in our unregenerate state, Christ appeared to us as nothing more than a lamb. He was a lamb. We saw in him no beauty that we should desire him. But when the Holy Spirit awakened us from the sleep of death, when he made us see our sinful and lost condition and turned our gaze toward Christ, then at last we beheld him as the lamb. We perceived his uniqueness, his unrivaled perfections. We learned that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. And finally... When God in his sovereign grace gave us personally faith whereby to receive Christ as our personal savior, then at last he could be said to be your lamb. As in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. 
and so it became personal from a lamb to the lamb to your lamb and so christ is your passover sacrifice now this word passover is an interesting word look at verse 13 exodus 12:13 it says the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are and when i see the blood i will pass over you no destructive plague will touch you when i strike egypt now the image i get here is of the angel of the lord kind of passing over or moving over and not doing something when i see the blood i will pass over i will move on but that actually is not the case there are hebrew verbs for pass over actually the verb is more connected to an egyptian word which means hover over to protect and so it was also translated in the septuagint the greek translation connected to clothing or covering and so there's a better sense here not of a mo movement over and a passing over so that nothing happens but rather a dedicated settling down for protection which god does and so they are protected from the wrath of god and you say well that's strange because god is the one sending the wrath yes that's true but he's the only one who can protect you as well and so there can be no protection if god does not give it and so a better sense is a settling down and a covering Take a minute, if you would, and look at Isaiah chapter 31 and verse 5. <clears throat> Actually, I'd like to begin at verse 4. Isaiah 31, 4 and 5. This is what the Lord says to me. As a lion growls, a great lion over his prey, and though a whole band of shepherds is called together against him, he's not frightened by their shouts or disturbed by their clamor. So the Lord Almighty will come down to do battle on Mount Zion and on its heights. And then verse 5, like birds hovering overhead, the Lord Almighty will shield Jerusalem. He will shield it and deliver it. He will pass over it and rescue it that's very interesting this the sense here is not one of movement across and on he goes but one of moving and settling down to protect and to deliver now look at matthew 23 uh, verse 37 And this is Jesus speaking to Jerusalem. You know, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus wept over Jerusalem, his people. And here he says in Matthew 23, 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. The picture here is of Christ the true Passover of Israel, yearning to gather the people together and settle down to protect them, to protect them from their enemies, but they were not willing. And so it says in, in Psalm 91, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely he will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. 
You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. Kind of a little bit different when you think about it in terms of the tenth plague. I will settle down over you and I will protect you and the plague will not come near you. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. If you make the Most High your dwelling, even the Lord, who is my refuge, then no harm will befall you, no disaster will come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And so the Passover really should be seen as a hovering protection from the sovereign God rather than something that moved on. And it makes sense because God alone can protect us from his wrath. The same one who brings the wrath is the one who can deliver. And so you study this morning in Psalm 2. We should kiss the son and embrace him lest his wrath break out against him. Blessed are all who trust in him. He is the whole issue. And so the wrath of God comes from God, and so also only deliverance can come as well. And then there's the hyssop. Look back at verse 22. Exodus 12:22. It says there, take a bunch of hyssop and dip it into the blood in the basin and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the doorframe. Not one of you shall go out of the door until morning. Now hyssop is a kind of a bushy plant whose whose uh, leaves acted somewhat like, I suppose, a paintbrush in some sense. But hyssop keeps showing up again and again in the scripture. For example, in Leviticus 14, don't turn there, but just listen, in the regulations for purification from leprosy, it says to purify the house, he is to take two birds and some cedar wood, scarlet yarn, and hyssop. He shall kill one of the birds over fresh water in a clay pot. Then he is to take the cedar wood, the hyssop, the scarlet yarn, and the live bird and dip them into the blood of the dead bird and the fresh water and sprinkle the house seven times. He shall purify the house with the bird's blood, the flesh, fresh water, the live bird, the cedar wood, the hyssop, and the scarlet yarn. And so there's a connection there between hyssop and purification, leprosy being a vile disease and somewhat a symbol of sin. So also we get purification from defilement in Numbers 19. It says, then a man who is ceremonially clean is to take some hyssop dip it in the water and sprinkle the tent and all the furnishings and the people who are in there. He must also sprinkle anyone who has touched a human bone or a grave or someone who has been killed or someone who has died a natural death. And so again, hyssop, purifying you from defilement should you touch something that defiles you. And then again, in, Isaiah, or in Psalm 51.7, David, confessing his own sin, sin, says, cleanse me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I'll, I shall be whiter than snow. Turn with me, if you would, in John chapter 19. John chapter 19, verse 28 and following. It says, Later, knowing that all was now completed, and so that scripture would be fulfilled. Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there. So they soaked the sponge in it and put the sponge on the stalk of the hyssop plant. Oh, I wonder what, what, that, what was that doing there, along with the jar of wine vinegar? 
just by chance there happens to be some hyssop. And as soon as Jesus had received the drink, he said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And so there are all these indications, one after the other. The very next verse says, now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. And what day was that? It was the Passover day. And at that moment, Jesus, the Passover lamb, has already effected purification for sin. Now, if we look at Exodus 12, many of the verses here are given for regulations of the ongoing observance of the Passover. The Passover was something they were to observe again and again, an ongoing regulation. We read them last time, and there's no need to read them again. The question we ask is, why was this to be a ritual? Why did God establish this ritual, this yearly observance? It was one of the three great festivals or feasts that each Jewish male was to observe and to travel to the place of worship that God would select. Why would he do this? Some of it has to do with our own minds. We're forgetful, aren't we? We forget what God has done. And so God has this yearly reminder of the great deliverance the taking of his people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, that they should look back on what God did that night. When the, when the uh, angel of death, the tenth plague, moved out, and the firstborn of everyone in Egypt, from Pharaoh all the way down to the handmaid at her wheel, everyone, all the firstborn slaughtered, except those under the blood of the sacrificial lamb. And so not only did they look back by means of this annual reminder, at God's mighty hand in taking them out. But so also they looked forward to Christ, who was the Lamb of God. And so again and again, our, our minds need to be stimulated. We need to be reminded. And so it says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, we must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. We have received a great salvation. And so in our minds again and again, we must refresh ourselves and think what Jesus has accomplished for us in the Passover. Now look with me, if you would, beginning at verse 21. Then Moses, it says, summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the doorframe. Not one of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway, and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and for your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you, as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the house, houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshipped. And the Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And so this was the establishment of the first Passover. The Passover would be celebrated five other times in the Old Testament. Here it's celebrated, the very first one. It was also celebrated in Numbers chapter 9 at the time of the giving of the law at Sinai. And so they celebrated the Passover there. And when they crossed the Jordan River in Joshua chapter 5, they celebrated the Passover again. And as, as soon as they celebrated the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at that moment the manna stopped and they began to eat from the Promised Land. So also in the time of Hezekiah in 2 Chronicles 30, 
they were unable to do it at the exact correct time because some regulations had been broken and so they did it a month later and again in the time of josiah second chronicles thirty five when josiah having received the book of the law deuteronomy i believe from the temple and hilkiah the priest brought it to him he realized the wrath against the people was great because they neglected all the commands of god and that included the passover and so they celebrated the passover second chronicles thirty five in a way that had not not been done since the days of samuel and then during the restoration with ezra and ezra chapter six six old testament sacrifices six times the passover lamb was sacrificed and we have a record of it in the scripture waiting for the seventh the perfect fulfillment and we get it in matthew twenty six when jesus comes and he says i've earnestly desired to eat this passover sacrifice with you and so he gathers them together and they celebrate in the upper room that seventh passover sacrifice the perfect sacrifice of jesus now with all of this symbolism we should not forget the action of history that night look at verse twenty nine in exodus twelve at midnight the lord struck down all the firstborn in egypt from the firstborn of pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all livestock as well pharaoh and all his officials and all the egyptians got up during the night and there was loud wailing in egypt for there was not a house without someone dead yes god established the passover regulations he established the ritual and it was to be done every year but let's not forget this very first one was the time of the wrath of god on the people of egypt the time of the wrath of god against pharaoh for his stubborn resistance against the will of the lord and so they paid the price for their rebellion they paid the price and the wrath of god came you know we forget sometimes i preached this morning about the judgment of god and jesus christ as he has warned again and again about the eternity of hell and people blow it off as though it's nothing as though it's insignificant so also pharaoh when warned even before any of the plagues had started that his firstborn was at stake thought very little of it said who is the lord that i should allow israel to go and yet in the end god's words came true and the firstborn were slaughtered now in verse 31 and following we have the record of the exodus during the night pharaoh summoned moses and aaron and said up leave my people you and the israelites go and worship the lord as you have requested take your flocks and herds as you have said and go and also bless me the egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country for otherwise they said we will all die so the people took their dough before the yeast was added and carried it on their shoulders in kneading troughs wrapped in clothing the Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and for clothing. The Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people, and they gave them what they asked for, so they plundered the Egyptians. The Israelites journeyed from Ramses to Succoth. There were about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children, perhaps as many as 2 million people. We forget the sheer number of people that God delivered that night. Many other people went up with them, as well as large droves of livestock, both flocks and herds. With the dough they had brought from Egypt, they baked cakes of unleavened bread. The dough was without yeast because they had been driven out of Egypt and did not have time to prepare food for themselves. Now, the length of the time the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years to the very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt. Because the Lord kept vigil that night to bring them out of Egypt, on this night, all the Israelites are to keep vigil to honor the Lord for generations to come. 
And then finally, he gives the Passover regulations one last time. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, these are the regulations for the Passover. No foreigner is to eat of it. Any slave you have bought may eat of it after you have circumcised him. But a temporary resident and hired worker may not eat of it. It must be eaten inside one house. Take none of the meat outside the house. Do not break any of the bones. The whole community of Israel must celebrate it. An alien living among you who wants to celebrate the Lord's Passover must have all the males in his household circumcised. Then he may take part like one born in the land. No uncircumcised male may eat of it. The same law applies to the native born and to the alien living among you. And then finally, a statement of full obedience, compliance with the Lord's regulation, the obedience of faith which saved their lives that night. All the Israelites did just what the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the Israelites out of Egypt by their divisions. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.